Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here talking with Donald B. Craybill, a senior fellow at the Young Center for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's written a book called Renegade Amish, Beard Cutting, Hate Crimes, and the Trial of the Bergholtz Barbers. Donald, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you were actually an expert witness in this case, but let's step back a little bit. How did you actually become interested and involved in studying the Amish? Well, I've been involved in Amish research um, and studies for the past 30 years. I'm a sociologist, and I've published over a dozen books uh, with academic presses on various um, aspects of Amish uh, faith and culture and particularly social change in Amish communities. I actually, when researching uh, before this podcast, watched the PBS documentary, um, American Experience, The Amish, and was startled about 15 minutes in to see you pop up as one of their experts. Yeah, I actually worked closely with them to recruit Amish people to participate in that. Um, and then with two colleagues, we wrote a book under the same title, The Amish, which is a comprehensive book of Amish communities in North America. I actually grew up in an area not too far from um, an Amish community in Arthur, Illinois. So, you know, I did... Uh, encounter them occasionally, but there are many areas of the country in which people who are listening to us would have no experience whatsoever with the Amish. What kinds of myths out there do people have about the Amish that you think need to be corrected? Well, for one, uh, a lot of people think the Amish don't pay taxes. The fact of the matter is they pay all their taxes like we do, all of them except uh, Social Security which they uh, view not as a tax, but as a, a, a violation of their religious beliefs that they should take care of each other. So in 1965, the U.S. Congress exempted the Amish from the Social Security system. They don't pay into it, and they don't tap out of it. So that's one myth. Another myth is that they don't vote. The Amish are permitted to vote. There's no prohibition against voting. However, uh, in, in many areas, very few of them vote. They are prohibited from holding public office. And uh, that belief or that conviction against holding public office comes from the fact that they object to litigation. They believe that uh, following the teachings of Jesus and the Bible, uh, they should not use force against other people, and they view litigation as a type of force and fear that if they were holding public office, by virtue of their responsibility in that office, they may be forced to participate in uh, litigation that may be necessary uh, for the common good um, in, in the role that they would play as a public official. Now, visually, the Amish are very distinctive because of um, the clothing that they that they choose to wear and their modes of transportation. But what are some key beliefs of the Amish faith that set them apart from um, some other religions that people might be more common with? Well, one of the key core convictions of Amish religion is uh, a commitment to nonviolence, to not retaliate, to not engage in revenge, and they are conscientious subjectors to war. Uh, a second uh, deep commitment is the importance of community. They play down individualism and, and accent uh, the primacy of the community. Uh, in a sense, that those values are upside down compared to mainstream culture, where we uh, give a great deal of attention to individual freedom, individual rights, self-actualization, and so on. 
and give much less uh, attention to community. A, a third uh, commitment of theirs is to live in communities that are separated from the larger culture. And this gets a little tricky because they um, engage in business. Uh, they are very integrated into the outside capitalist system and market system. They buy and sell goods on the public market. Uh, there are some twelve to 14,000 uh, small businesses that are very successful that are owned and operated by Amish people. Nonetheless, they do emphasize cultural separation in terms of uh, the fact that they don't go beyond the eighth grade in, in education, that they reject certain types of technology such as television or the Internet. But they don't completely reject technology, but um, actually selectively make decisions about technology that they think uh, appropriately represent their separation culturally from the outside um, society. Now, you've mentioned a couple different aspects of uh, the Amish faith, which made this particular incident that, we, that you ended up writing the book about, I think, so shocking to both the Amish community and the outside community, which is, you know, they emphasize nonviolence and forgiveness and community, but these terrible acts uh, went on. Could you give us a brief summation of um, what happened in the Bergholtz Barber case? Right. Well, let me let me say uh, first, just as kind of a preface, um, what the ironic thing here is that this group that comes from a peace-loving pacifist uh, tradition, religious tradition, became the first people to be convicted in America of federal hate crimes uh, mot motivated by religion. Uh, that have been prosecuted under Shepherd Bird. So that's sort of the profound irony that hangs over this whole case. Uh, Bishop Samuel Mullet established um, a small Amish congregation um, in uh, eastern Ohio, close to the Pennsylvania line, in Jefferson County uh, in 1995. He eventually was ordained a minister and then eventually bishop. And um, he had an autocratic style of leading the community and one summer excommunicated eight or nine households, and uh, the people that were excommunicated felt that they were um, unfairly excommunicated. This led to a large meeting, a one-day meeting of 300 Amish ministers and bishops to consider the question, what shall we do with Bishop Mullet? And they unanimously agreed to nullify his power to excommunicate. This annoyed him, made him angry. In a sense, he was turned down unanimously by the quote-unquote Supreme Court in the Amish world. And I think uh, that precipitated these uh, beard-cutting attacks that took place in the fall of 2011. There were five of these attacks. Three of them were at night when uh, members of his um, Bergholtz uh, clan uh, broke into Amish homes in other counties Three of the attacks took place in three separate counties, uh, two hours or so away from Bergholtz. And then in addition, there were two ambushes in the Bergholtz Amish community where they lured outside uh, family members who were concerned about what was happening to their relatives living in Bergholtz. The Bergholtz people lured these people in um, and then in two cases attacked them and cut off the, the beards of the men. In your account, 
in the book of these attacks, what really struck me was how personal this was. In most cases, family members were involved um, in in attacking other family members, uh, and and it was just really heartrending. Um, the descriptions and and the fear and the and the the violence of the attacks. Well, this was very frightening. You're correct. There were family members involved in some of the attacks, but not all of them. And some of the bishops were targeted specifically because they had been part of this larger deci- this decision by the larger group. But but uh, the victims were there were a total of nine victims. They were restrained. They were held down. Their beards were cut off of the men. The hair was cut off, and they a number of them had abrasions and were bleeding as well. So they were very um, very aggressive attacks, but. It was very clever that the assailants went after the beards because the beard is a central symbol of Amish religion and Amish ethnic identity, and especially for men, older men, bishop, uh, a symbol of their status and role in the community. So it was a it was a clever way to disgrace these people and to embarrass and to shame them. Let's talk about how the case was was built. First of all. Um, as you said, the Amish in general do not believe in litigation. How did law enforcement gain their cooperation? What was the relationship like uh, between the prosecution and the victims and people that they were trying to build the case with? Well, generally, Amish people are reluctant to press charges uh, if they are the victims of some kind of uh, an offense. And that, again, they feel like pressing charges is a, is using force. Their inclination is to forgive something and just move on. One of the bishops in, knew of previous beard-cutting attacks uh, a few weeks earlier, and he had decided he was going to press charges if he was attacked. And, in fact, he did be, press charges. But another bishop refused at first. Well, actually, he agreed the night of the attack to press charges. And then the next morning, he changed his mind and didn't want to. But the detective in this case grew up Amish, and uh, he knew Pennsylvania Dutch, and he finally persuaded the bishop to change his mind again and go forward with pre- with pressing charges so that other people would not be hurt. Um, and that there wouldn't be additional beard-cutting attacks that would harm other people. But he struggles, and I go into considerable detail in the book talking about how this bishop struggled uh, with his conscience on that particular question. Now, all these attacks, although, as you said, it happened in five different counties, did take place in the state of Ohio. That's correct. What were the considerations that made the prosecutors decide to seek this as a federal case instead of a state case? Well, in the book, I list, I think, about a dozen reasons why um, the, the federal prosecutors came into the case. First of all, because the attacks were in different counties, and if each local municipality had conducted its own trial, there would have been complications with moving witnesses around, moving evidence around, and also the likelihood that there would have been various uh, levels of sentencing that may not have been uniform uh, across the different counties. In addition, um, one of the assistants in the attorney general's office actually invited um, the the federal government to, to intervene in this. Uh, and that raised some complications because, as you may know, th- there are three things you need for evidence of a federal hate crime under Shepard Byrd. 
the one is you need evidence of interstate commerce. And secondly, you need evidence of bodily injury. And third, you need evidence of motivation that the assailants attacked the victims because they didn't like the victim's religion. And I can expand on those, but particularly the Commerce Clause is a debatable issue in terms of whether it provides uh, the proper interpretation of the U.S. Constitution to legitimate uh, Shepard Byrd. In this case, the prosecutors used several types of uh, interstate commerce evidence. The horse shears that was used, which is a sizable shears, very sharp, and cut a horse mane off very quickly. It's not like a paper scissors. The horseshoes and the clippers were both manufactured out of state. And in addition, uh, the assailants were using a, a little disposable camera to take photos of what they were doing, which, by the way, provided excellent evidence in the trial. Uh, and that camera was manufactured out of state. They also used interstate highways and they used the U.S. Postal Service. And so those were the bits of evidence that the prosecutor prosecutors used to uh, meet the requirements of interstate commerce. And I think some legal scholars um, felt that was perhaps thin evidence, and there was some uh, speculation um, that when the appeal took place that the appellate court might ask for a review of the interstate commerce clause, but in fact they didn't. And we'll get to that really quickly, but let's talk about the the first trial. Um, I was struck by a paragraph in your book where you lay out really the complexity of this case. You said, there were not only 90 different legal charges, 20 attorneys, nine victims, five attacks on four different days, but also 16 defendants with overlapping names, four mullets, nine millers, two Schrocks, and one Burkholder. Moreover, four married couples were among the defendants. Uh, this was an incredibly complex case to put together, and you actually were brought in um, at what point to to act as an expert witness? Well, I uh, in uh, the the trial took place in September of 2012, and I believe in February it was that I was asked by the U.S. Department of Justice to assist them in developing the case. The Amish world is very complicated. There are some 40 different Amish groups with different practices. And so if you're an outside prosecutor uh, trying to figure out who did what to whom when, um, it's a complicated maze. And so I assisted the prosecution trying to understand the different groups and their different practices. And then I was asked to testify at the trial. And I was on the witness. I was actually the only uh, outside expert uh, to testify. The defense didn't call any witnesses, and uh, the, the, the other witnesses that were called for the prosecution were directly involved somehow with the beard cutting. I was the only outside expert witness. I testified for five hours uh, over two different days, and what was most challenging was the cross-examination because in front of me in the courtroom were 16 defendants, and beside each one was a defense attorney. So uh, <laughs> there were 16 different defense attorneys that could have cross-examined me. I believe five or six of them did. And, of course, their job was to try to belittle my testimony, poke holes into my academic credentials, and raise doubts in the, in the mind of the jury um, in terms of the uh, competency of my uh, testimony a few hours earlier. Now, you're a professor. Was this your first experience as an expert witness in a, in a court case? 
Uh, no, I've actually testified for or against the Amish in a number of other cases. So I was familiar with the courtroom procedure, but I would say this uh, was the most challenging because of the length of the case, the, the length of time I was on the witness stand. Secondly, the complexity of it. And third, uh, <laughs> having 16 potential adversaries, uh, you know, uh, defense attorneys cross-examine me when in the past it's typically just one. So what made you decide that um, this was the time to, to write a book about this topic? You actually, um, this book is coming out right now, but you, it appears from the book, completed it around April, and in between the time that you completed the book uh, and its publication date, the Sixth Circuit decision came out, which reversed uh, these convictions, which isn't the end of the, end of the case, absolutely. But what made you decide to publish this book now? Well, a lot of people urged me to write a book. I had uh, excellent information that I had gathered in preparation for the testimony. I mean, historical research and so on. Uh, being there at the trial helped me understand. Then I was able to acquire the transcripts, some 2,400 pages. Um, and so I, I, I was fairly well informed about the issues. And then in addition, I did about 30 face-to-face -face interviews. Uh, with a variety of people, some who had lived in Berghalts with law enforcement officers. And I, I felt it would be helpful for not only Amish people, but scholars and outside people that had an interest in the case to see the whole story uh, put together into a coherent narrative. Uh, because the story had been reported over about uh, two years, and there were bits and pieces coming out in people didn't really have a chance to see how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. So that was one of my primary motives in, in writing the book. Let's talk about how the Sixth Circuit reversal um, of United States v. Miller. They actually relied on a case that came out between the time that this case was decided and the time that they were deciding United States v. Miller. Can you talk a little bit about the importance in the hate crime clause of but for causation. Well, uh, Shepard Bird says that uh, in terms of motives uh, for the, there are six protected groups of people that uh, there has to be evidence that a victim was attacked because of, because of their religion, their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, the fact that they might have a disability in their country of origin. But what does because of mean? So the appellate opinion focused on trying to discern and to parse out uh, what because of means. One reason, I mean, one definition of because of is that uh, uses the but for clause that the assailants would not have attacked the victims, but for the victims' uh, religious beliefs. Now, the majority, it was a two-to-one majority in the appellate court, and the majority said, well, the judge made uh, the court, the district court in Cleveland made an error in the instruction to the jury because the uh, district court instructed the jury that they need to find out and decide was religion, and I'm quoting now, open quote, a significant motivating factor. Was religion a significant motivating factor? The majority in the appellate court said, well, that's not strong enough. Um, maybe there were three significant factors. How do we know religion was the most significant factor? And so 
in the majority's opinion, the judge made an error, and the judge perhaps should have said, well, it was a predominant factor. It was the main factor. And so the uh, appellate majority is asking for a more restricted interpretation of the but-for, making it clear that it's the overriding or it's the predominant motive. Uh, on the other hand, the district court's definition was a bit more expansive. And so what's at stake here is a, a more conservative, more restricted definition of hate crimes, which uh, if the uh, appellate majority is upheld, will make it more difficult to prosecute for the federal government to prosecute hate crimes in the future. Hate crimes are complicated because there may be three or four different motives. And it becomes challenging uh, to be clear that there is a single predominant motive among several others. Whereas the district uh, court, in talking about being a significant factor, was a more expansive definition. Now, the dissenting judge strongly disagreed. But the other issue here was, was this error a harmful one or harmless? And the uh, appellate court was saying the error was harmful. In other words, the jury may not have agreed on the convictions that they were guilty if they had been instructed uh, in a different way. So, But the dissenting judge said, no, it was not harmful. It was harmless because the dissenting judge said the overwhelming and unrefuted evidence at the trial demonstrates that Mullet um, had participated in these assaults because of the victim's religious beliefs. So do you anticipate this case being retried? What, what do you think is the future for this case? And do you think it will go to the Supreme Court? Uh, we are in extra innings. And this case, this game is not over uh, for this case. Now the government's uh, team, uh, prosecutors are up to bat. And there's several different directions they might go. They may ask for an en banc. That is to ask for a full panel of all the judges on the 6th District Court to review the case and take a vote on it. They may petition the U.S. Supreme Court. They may uh, proceed with a retrial of all the defendants or perhaps just some of the defendants. Or they may uh, drop the hate crime charges. It's a fourth option. And remember, uh, the, 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 the ones who are still in prison with five, seven-year sentences, and the bishop with a 15-year sentence are still under indictment and were found guilty for participating in a conspiracy, for concealing evidence, and for lying to the FBI. So they might, um, uh, uh, the fourth option might be to drop the hate crime charges and to resentence uh, those persons uh, with perhaps a lighter sentence reflecting their their the indictment and their guilty verdicts under those three other areas. Well, if anyone is interested in the background of this case, uh, as we look to see what happens in the future, they can pick up your book. It's Renegade Amish, Beard Cutting, Hate Crimes, and the Trial of the Bergholtz Barbers. And if anyone is interested in finding out more about the Amish people and religion, we'll have links on our site at abajournal.com. Donald, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to speak with us. This has been lovely. My pleasure.